invite you now to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we'll study verses 1 through 24. Searching for and finding donkeys. This wonderful story, this long narrative. Let's read God's word together. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorat, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among all the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul's, Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us where we should. But if we go, what can we give to this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again. Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said. Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow... About this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. 
For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? What then have you spoken, or why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So, so the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept for you before you eat, because it was kept for you until the, time, the hour appointed that you might eat with the guest. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. The word of the Lord. May he help us have understanding. May he give us benefit from it. In the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3, section 1, the Westminster Assembly wrote, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God from all eternity, by the most holy, wise counsel of his own will, did freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Here they're describing the sovereignty of God, his wisdom, his predestining of all things. And here this evening we read a story, and what a story we have read. A donkey hunt that results in a donkey farmer becoming a king. I mean, it's almost too much really if you read it. And the way that it happens, it seems like you have people from various places that are completely unconnected coming together and the only person that has the perspective is the one who is divine, seated on high, who is organizing and orchestrating the whole of the narrative. And one of the things that, I mean, it makes perfect sense. This narrative has historical meaning. It has real significance to the people of Israel, doesn't it? It has to. This is part of their history. And if you're a fan of the history of antiquity, this is just the sort of story you would enjoy. But the thing that I want to tell you is that there is more than simply the history of Israel here. There is biblical history that then foreshadows the need for a greater king. And this passage of Scripture with its donkeys and its seers and its young women, and even the young man Saul who's going to make a mess of things eventually, shows forth to us the character of God and so we can learn things about Him. And there are two things I want us to see this evening, very simple things. And the first of them is that God ordains everything that happens. God ordains Everything that happens. And then secondly, God gives us what we need, even if it's not what we want. God gives us what we need, even if it's not 
what he wants, or what we want. So this first thing, that God ordains everything that happens. The first thing I want you to see here is that though we're not going to go verse by verse, like is our normal uh, way of preaching and going through books of the Bible, because this is a narrative, and, and really it's a sum of the whole is, is, is how we ought to understand it. But there are a few things I want to point out to you. And the first of this, them is this, that this is a story about God answering his people. So we read in verse 16, if you look down to chapter 9, that this is the Lord hearing and seeing the people as they cry to him. And what's been their cry? Well, they've been complaining about the abuses of the sons of Samuel. Now we know Samuel, the whole of uh, the first portion of the book is about him, about this man who will be a judge, who will lead the people of God. As also, he serves in the fashion and capacity as a priest. And they have a good complaint, don't they? I think it's a good complaint. Samuel's taken his sons and put them in the role of judges. And what have they done? Well, they've been partial judges. They've taken bribes from people. They've not been above. Uh, they've not maintained justice. And so the people have a good complaint. It makes good sense. You and I want impartial judges. We want fairness. We want justice. We want somebody that will make the things that we have messed up clear, right, and equitable. So the people have a good complaint. And they come to Samuel and they complain to him about the impropriety or the abuses of the sons of Samuel. But then they come with another request. We want a king just like all the nations. We want a king just like all the nations. And this is a cry for worldliness. We want to be just like everybody else. We don't want to stick out. We're the only people. We're the only kids on the block who don't have a king, God. We want a nice king, a good one, a brand new one, nice and shiny. You know, the ones that, you know, when, when they go down the street on their chariots, all the other kids, ooh and ah, right? That's the sense. They have a worldliness. They want to be just like everybody else instead of being who they have been. The people ruled by judges whose king is none other than the Lord, the God of heaven. And Samuel hears it. He takes it personally. His ministry has been rejected. But the Lord says, Samuel, it's not you that they're rejecting. They're rejecting me as king over them. And so we come to this. Samuel has already warned them, but now the Lord has granted their cry. He has heard what they've called out for. And so he is giving it to them and answering them according to his own wisdom. And it's a strange story. And in verse 1, we begin with this random man. At least it seems random to us. I highly doubt you have any neighbors named Kish. But yet we have this man of the tribe of Benjamin named Kish, the son of somebody who we don't know, Avael, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah. We're just told he's a man of wealth. Other than that, we don't know much about him in the Scriptures. And so we move on. And there's not a whole lot there to then press uh, the, the meaning of the text from. But it's one of those details orchestrated by God. And you see the passage of history and all of these things coming down to where in verse 2 we're introduced to his son. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any 
of the people of Israel. That's sort of a strange way of expressing uh, tallness, I guess. I mean, what about shoulders down? Maybe someone can explain that one to me. I thought on it a little while, never came to a conclusion. But nonetheless, he's good looking. He's young. Maybe he's in his 20s. A young man in this time would have probably been in his 20s. Otherwise, when you get into the 30s, at this point in time, you're already kind of an old guy. And you're in your 40s. You're, you're quite old in the ancient world. You've advanced. You've survived a lot longer than most. You've not died from any of the regular diseases that plague the world in this era. But nonetheless, he's the sort of guy they're looking for. He's the shiny guy, right? He's the one that, you know, you would expect on the chariot. He's something to behold. He stands out from a crowd. In fact, he's taller than everybody in the crowd. You can't help but notice him. And this is one of the things that for the whole course of my life, I've always said, if only I could be just four inches taller. Just a little bit. Just, just that much more. Make my life a lot easier. I could finally reach the things on the top and the top of the cupboard. But here you go. We have another detail. Saul, the son of Kish, who has a long parentage in the tribe of Benjamin, a man of Israel. And we press on and the narrative continues. And in verse 3, we begin to read about the great donkey search of Saul. And this really seems quite, well, country. Or as we might read in the commentaries, colloquial. Something of the people of the land. Something that I don't know if any of us have really experienced. Anybody ever gone on a donkey hunt? Not me. Not me. I did grow up on a cattle farm, so I know what it is to chase cows. But I hear that donkeys, or at least I read that donkeys, are a bit difficult, more difficult even than cows. So in verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. They got out. They were looking at other pastors, and they kept going, and they had their little donkey party, and they took off. And nobody knows where they are. And so the story continues, and we get more details, and what happens? Kish sends Saul. And so he's a very wealthy man, we're told. But apparently, it's normal, at least for him, to send his son, his really attractive son, the inheritor of his household, Saul, to go and look for these donkeys with one of the servants. You see, they're farmers, as it were. The picture's getting a little more narrow. And then we're told, and the story goes on, and it almost makes for a movie sort of setting. You've got the start of, of this great journey, and he's going, and it's really not about the destination, but it's about the journey, and you've got Saul, and he's looking for donkeys, and he's got the servant with him, and they're going, and they, well, they go everywhere, and they don't find him. They go high, they go low. The hill country of Ephraim to Shalisha. They pass through even Benjamin as if they doubled back, and they come to the land of Zuf, and there's no donkeys anywhere. None. And if anyone would see him, it'd be Saul, because he's taller than everybody. No donkeys. It's failed. It's like the the hobbits taking the ring to Mordor. That's the only Lord of the Rings mention you'll ever hear me make. <laughs> and yet the narrative goes on. And we begin to get narrow. And you've got this wide funnel that comes to the land of Zuth. And we have this circumstance. And you've got Saul. And we learn a thing about him. That after a few days, as Samuel's going to tell us later, it's been three days. Three days and no donkeys. No donkeys. Not one. Saul's thinking, hey, you know, my father's going to be afraid for our, our well-being. He turns to the unnamed servant. Hey, we ought to go back, man. We ought to just say, forget this. I mean, we've been gone for three days. The bread's gone. The money's almost gone. Well, 
really, it's kind of getting dangerous for us. We're worried about the donkeys. Well, what about us? We'll be the other two lost donkeys. What do we do? Well, the servant looks at him and says, hey, how about we go and rustle up some divine help? I know a guy. I've heard about a guy. There's a seer and he's in the city. He comes around at least sometimes. And, you know, he's there and I hear that anytime anybody asks him anything, he tells them what they're looking for. And maybe he could tell us right where the donkeys are. Because he's not just a seer, but he also has some sense about the donkeys, some divine help about their whereabouts. You can almost see the, the interaction. I mean, this is comical. Two guys, tired, dirty, hungry, standing there. Wondering where their donkeys are, completely bust, thinking, I'm about to go home to Kish and I don't have anything to show him. And the servant says, well, hey, one last thing. Let me tell you, I know a guy that's got a crystal ball. I know a guy that can help us. I know a guy. And Samuel says, well, that's going to cost some money. It's going to cost something. I don't have anything. Digs in his pockets. There's nothing. Well, the servant... I mean, they must have been wealthy. The servants had some money. He pulls out a silver shekel, at least a quarter of it, a fourth of it. And he says, I'll give it to the man of God. And he'll tell us where to go. And I just I love Saul's response. Well said. Come, let us go. Sounds good to me. One last thing. We'll say we gave it everything we had. We'll go home completely broke if we have no donkeys. Well, that sounds like an all right story. It's a narrative that's narrowing. And as we continue and they go into the city in verse 11, we're told that they meet young women coming out to draw water. This is so common in the biblical narrative and in the ancient world. That young women early in the day would go out in the cool of the day to take water before it's entirely hot. They go to the well, they draw water, and they come back. It was women's work and men weren't to be seen at the well with women. But nonetheless, they pass and they see one another. And these two young men say, hey, before we go up the hill, can you tell us, before all of that hike, is the seer there? Is this worth our trip? And the young women say, yes. In fact, he's right up there. And you need to get going. And if you don't get going, well, you may end up missing him, but he's here for some business. He's here because people are making a sacrifice. And so we see the outline of Samuel, the judge, come into sight. And what is he? Well, he's like a traveling minister. All wrapped into a civil position to, well, decide civil cases. But what's he doing there? Well, he's making his circuit. He's visiting. And specifically, he's there to pray for the sacrifice that they're going to make on this high spot, this high place, the altar of the Lord, the people are worshiping there. So he's there for a religious purpose. And everything continues to narrow. And it's been building. And it's a good story. But whenever you get into verses 15 and 16, we begin to get the true perspective. The perspective of God the one who ordains all things and is orchestrating this here in the life of Saul and the life of Israel and in the greater life of all of God's people still having its great ramifications even today. Verse 15, we read that now the day before Saul came that the Lord had revealed to Samuel and he spoke to him. Verse 16, and he says, Tomorrow about this time, 
I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over the people of Israel. And whenever I was looking at this passage of Scripture, when it comes to this word prince, it's, it's translated here as prince. It could mean leader, but it's not the word king. Um, it's an interesting thing. It's as if, as if God is kind of holding that back. He, he's not saying Saul's going to be anointed as a king, but rather as a servant, as a prince, as a leader of the people. David, the one that comes later, is going to be the Melech. I mean, we do understand that Samuel is going to anoint him and that the people are going to receive him as king. But there's a part in this that the Lord is sort of holding back and simply saying in the title of the prince or the leader that the Lord remains sovereign over this man who will be established as a sovereign over the people of Israel. He's a prince. He's a leader. But God is the one that's going to put the crown on his head. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. God is saying all of these things are coming together because I've planned it. And it's for just this time. And he's going to be a leader of my people. He's going to defend them from an enemy, the Philistines. And if you know any single thing about Saul, he was the right man for the day. Why? Because Israel wanted to be worldly. They wanted to be like all the nations. There's one thing you can say about Saul in the general course. And if I were to ask you, you know, how successful was Saul? You might all say, well, he was a total failure. It was a catastrophe. He made mistake upon mistake. He was a violent man. But the one thing that I would encourage you to simply see is that he did not in any way, it seems, then take the people of Israel and encourage them to further worldliness. Israel remained a people circumcised. They remained a people unique to the God of heaven. Saul was the right man. Even if he was the brash man, he was a right man for the specific moment. He was a man that the Lord here says is to restrain the people of Israel. So what do I want you to see in this first section? It's that God directs all things that come to pass. The random guy named Kish and his dad and his granddad and his great granddad. That God controls the little things. He's sovereign over the little things. Like if your sons grow up to be healthy, good looking and tall or not. That the Lord controls the little things like how many donkeys you have, how many servants you have, how much bread they have, how much silver they have, where they go and whenever the donkeys decide to break the fence. He's sovereign over all of these things because without wayward donkeys, the Lord would have never had Saul at that city to meet Samuel. God is sovereign over the small things and the large things of life. And I would simply say, you know, if I ask you, do you believe God is sovereign? You would say yes. And I would say, well, how about give me an example? And the Americans in the room would say, well, he was obviously sovereign about me moving to Germany. Yeah, it's a big thing. Of course he's sovereign over that sort of thing. For others in the room, you might say, well, he was sovereign over, well, my employment. He was sovereign over my choice of spouse. 
or my spouse's choice of me, however it might go for you. You could say a number of things. But would you say he was sovereign over my breakfast? He was sovereign over the time I had a punctured tire. He was sovereign over the illness that I had or my wife had and we suffered from. He was sovereign over the tree that fell on our house. He had a purpose in all these things. He was sovereign over my cranky neighbor, that guy named Kish, that's really problematic with his loud donkeys. What would you say? How, how narrow would you make it? Well, here's the truth, friends. He's sovereign over it all. Whether you see it or you don't see it, he sees it. Saul didn't see it. Kish didn't see it. The servant didn't see it. The donkeys didn't see it. They weren't being chased by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, although the Lord can do that if He so pleases. The young women didn't see it. Samuel only heard it whenever the Lord revealed it. These things are hidden in His view and in His wisdom according to His plan. The big things, the little things, all things are bringing His people closer and closer to the one who will rule over them, not as a prince, but as a king and sovereign power and glory. The Lord Jesus Christ, God is sovereign and controls and ordains all things. Second thing, he said, God gives us what we need, maybe not what we want. God gives us what we need, maybe not what we want. And I think there's some sense of that. Um, and we're encouraged in the Bible to pray uh, for the desires of our hearts. We're told in the Bible that when we pray, the Lord hears us. And he's attentive to our prayers, that he doesn't ignore our prayers. But have you ever prayed a prayer, a foolish prayer? I have. Have you ever requested something, um, maybe selfishly, that you really wanted? And maybe it wasn't even a totally bad thing or objectively bad. You didn't pray for, like, sin, but you just didn't pray very Godwardly. And then you found that over the course of time, that prayer didn't come. The Lord didn't answer it according to the way you would want. That new nice car wasn't miraculously left in the driveway. Or more specifically, that job that you thought would be really, really good for you, you didn't get it. You interviewed, you didn't get it. And you wonder why. Why didn't I get that? I wish I'd gotten that. It seemed to me that it would be good. Or maybe even you had an illness and you prayed to the Lord, Lord, please take this from me. And you want it. And there is a sincere and a good reason why you would want to be free from illness. To have the blessing of physical wellness. The Lord didn't withdraw it. And there are things hidden in the person of God and in his wisdom that are not according to who we are, but according to who he is. The things that he's doing according to what we need. And so that he may be glorified. We come to the passage of Scripture this evening and we have to ask the question, what sort of man is Saul? Well, so far in that first section, we've at least been able to say a few things. Firstly, he's honking handsome. He's good looking, tall. He is obedient to his father. I mean, I don't know if I was a young man and my dad said, hey, go chase down these donkeys or... You know, I was raised on a cattle farm. Go, go take a, after the cows. My dad normally would note that I wasn't always pleased. I remember this one circumstance when I was a kid. Uh, our, our cows got out. They tore the fence down, as cows do. They do it just by leaning on it. They just break massive pieces of wood. They just lean on it. They just go out into traffic, get hit by cars. Really, really bad. They destroy crops, stuff like that. 
But I got woken up early in the morning. It was like 3 a.m. My dad's in my room. My grandfather's outside on a tractor, and I can just hear the engine on the tractor. And my dad says, get up. We have to go and get the cows. And you wake up, and you think to yourself, what am I doing? Where am I? Am I alive? And then you realize it's Christmas Eve, or a Christmas Day morning, actually. It's Christmas Day morning at 3 a.m., and it's really cold, at least for where I'm from outside. You get bundled up, you take down the road, and they're saying the cows are there at the neighbor's house. They called us. And you get down there, and our neighbor's entire yard is full of cows. And you think to yourself, in the dark of the night, how are we getting these animals that are bigger than us down the road where cars are still active? How are we going to get them all the way down to our field, in the fence, the fence back up, and maintain any sort of normalcy on this holiday that we really want to enjoy? It's tough, it's not pleasant, but here's Saul, and his father has lost donkeys, and the Bible doesn't record any complaint, he just goes. I think if there was a complaint, the Bible would have been happy to record it, especially according to Saul and his character. But he goes, he's obedient to his father. A handsome man, and he's persistent. He searches high, he searches low for the donkeys, and he doesn't give up. He's after a very stubborn animal. It's not a sheep. It's not a sheep. He's a donkey farmer, not a shepherd. Those are different things. So I'm told. And in verse 16, he's a man who is equipped to save the people of Israel from the attack of the Philistines. Now we've read about the Philistines. There's one Philistine in particular that the children in the room might know about. Was there a great Philistine giant? Haddon? Was there a great Philistine giant? What was his name? Goliath. Goliath, that's right. And there needed to be a really tall Israelite like Saul, right? A great warrior, because that was a great warrior of the Philistines. Well, the Word of God said that he's going to be a savior for the people of of Israel, But in verse 17, we learn about his character very specifically. And I think it's completely in line with everything we've already read. The Lord doesn't only say he is the one who's going to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. But in verse 17, he it is who will restrain, restrain my people. Well, that's interesting. Israelites, Lord, we want a king like the nations. We want a king in fine clothes and great palaces with pomp and circumstance, with chariots of gold. We want a king that leads armies. We want a king that loves us and puts on great parties. We want that kind of king. And God says in verse 17, that may be what you want, but what you need is a king to restrain you. Keep you from your own inclination to worldliness and sin. Who better than a donkey farmer to deal with the worldly Israelites at this time? They needed this donkey farmer. Samuel, in all of his wisdom, looked at the man from Benjamin. And if he didn't know anything other than he was seeking donkeys, he may have said to himself, yes, yeah, Saul is in search of some stubborn and wandering animals. But today he has found some stubborn and wandering people. 
God gives us what we need. He gave them what they needed. He gave them a king that would tell David, if you want to marry my daughter, you got to get to circumcising some Philistines. A high order. A man that would be known for his identity as a son of Israel, even in his really unholy character. He was the man for the moment, the man for the hour, not necessarily the man that they requested. And this is how the Lord deals with us. He gives us what we need. And why does the Lord do this? It's because of his wisdom. And you can see the humble beginnings of all of this. What do we have? Well, we have Samuel going to serve the people spiritually to pray over the meal. And what does he do? He invites this young man who's going to be the king. He says, come, eat with us. And he sits him right at the head of the table as if to say to him, you need to get used to this. Today you got 30 people, but tomorrow you're going to have 30,000. You need to understand that this is coming, Samuel. And, oh, Samuel, we know you don't have any money. We know you don't have any food. But here's the thing. A man like you that's going to lead these people, that's going to restrain them, guess what? They're going to provide and prepare for you what your meal is. And look, we've already put it aside and we've prepared it, we've cooked it. And here's the leg of lamb or the leg of beef or whatever sort of leg it was that he was given for dinner. And then what next? Well, Samuel encourages Saul to go up on that rooftop, sleep high above everybody. In that place of authority. It might not seem like authority. It's low authority. Especially in this city. This town in the land of Zuf. But it's foreshadowing the glory that he's going to enjoy as a king. He's the man for the moment. He's what the people of Israel need. And the Lord gave them exactly what they needed. Not a man that expected palaces. Not a man that expected almost anything. In fact, whenever Samuel says to them. Who is it that ought to have the very best of the people of Israel? And he says, it's you. What does Saul say? Well, me? Why would you talk to me this way? I'm a Benjaminite. We're the least of all of the tribes of Israel. And I'm from the least of the clans of the Benjaminites. We're nobody. We're people from nowhere. I'm nothing. He wasn't the worldly king, at least in the beginning, that he became, or at least the harsh king that he became. It was God's wisdom. And the thing I want to say to us this evening is this. From this ancient narrative, this testimony of the calling of Saul, is that you and I can learn that the Lord is wiser than we are. He knows what we need. He's faithful to provide what we need. He hears what we cry out to him for, and he gives to us what will keep us in his hand, what will help us to taste his mercy, what will keep us from a worldly life, what will keep us safe until the kingdom of his son that will arrive. And I want to encourage you with that. Next time when we come together, next Lord's Day evening, we're going to have evening service again. We're going to take into chapter 10. We'll begin in chapter 9, verse 27. And we'll study the installation or the ordination, if you will, of Saul as king. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. Lord, we love it not just for its stories, but for the reflection of your face that we see within them. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to not just hear ancient and dry stories, but that, Lord, we would receive from them great benefit. Lord, for our lives, that we would see you as sovereign. Not just a God sovereign over donkeys and men living in small families and small tribes, but that we would see you as the God over our lives, personally, individually. And that, Lord, we would lean upon you and trust you, O oh, Lord, in your gifts and in your providences. You know what we need, and you give it to us without fail. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.